Okay, everyone, I'm just going to read through it, and then uh, I'll pray. So today we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to pick up, like I said, in uh, verses 23 to 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to understand what this means. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to each and every single one of us directly, that we may be encouraged, that we may be corrected, and that you would give us practical things and ways for us to respond. Holy Spirit, please be with us today and be with me today as I deliver your word. In your name we pray. Amen. How's everyone doing? Yeah? Yeah? Welcome. I didn't come say hi, so I'll just do it through the mic. <laughs> Last week, um, Mike, you, you uh, taught um, the previous passage, and we saw in uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, that after Jesus finished up his ministry in Capernaum for the first time, and not, not the last time, but this section of ministry in Capernaum, that Jesus decided that he would go to the other side. And later, I think next week, we're going to be going into the passage, but we'll see that that place that they're going to is a place called the country of the Gadarenes. And so today's passage actually takes place on the boat ride between Capernaum and the Gadarenes. Okay, just so you have a picture of it. Uh, last week, Mike led us through verses 18 to 22. And so uh, that passage was kind of like this, this segue between, uh, on one hand, you have these three miracles that he does. Remember, he heals the leper and he heals hey round of applause come on they are alive that's a normal thing to expect after a wedding survival So like I said, we had these two miracle, uh, three miracles. Uh, the leper is healed. The centurion is healed. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law is healed. And, uh, and then right after that, you have this story where Jesus starts to explain um, what it's like to be a disciple of his, right? And so if you remember last week, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, you just flip over there. Jesus says to the people who say they want to follow him, he says, foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so what Mike covered last week is that it was the cost of, this, uh, of following Jesus, or as Bonhoeffer calls it, the, the cost of discipleship. And he basically is saying to, to his followers that following me, following Jesus, it is expensive, it's costly, it will, re it will require things of you, right? Um, but if we think about it, in 2020... That really isn't what we want to hear, right? That's not really what is commonly spoken of 
um, through a lot of materials and speakers. And when you look, uh, it seems that people would rather speak about the perks of discipleship versus the cost of discipleship, right? The cost of discipleship is, is not what it costs to be saved by Christ. But once you receive the free salvation that he offers you, what he requires of you, that is the cost of discipleship. And it is pricey and it is expensive. And for many of us, it will cost us our lives, right? So today I want to look at this passage and answer that important question that the disciples ask at the end of this passage. What sort of man is this? Right? That's what they ask him. And I think by looking... And trying to answer this question and looking at the type of Jesus that we serve, we can kind of get a clearer picture of what it means to follow Jesus. I think last, the last week's passage was kind of Jesus speaking in hypotheticals. They haven't left yet, right? And as soon as they hit the road, Jesus gives them an opportunity to live out exactly what he was saying in verse 20, right? He's like, okay, I'll show you what it means to follow me. So let's go to the other side, and then they go on an adventure. So the cost of discipleship is high, and Jesus is going to explain it. So I'm going to cover three things, like a real Baptist, three points. The first one, to answer that question, what sort of man is this? He is a leader, right? He is a leader, and that may sound like the most obvious thing of all time, but Jesus is a leader, and we we can see that in verses 23 to 24. So like I said, these verses follow... Jesus on the boat between the Gadarenes and Capernaum. Jesus initiates a trip. And then in verse 23, Jesus gets into a boat. I don't think it's his. It's it's definitely not his. Just takes his boat. And then he pushes off to the other side. And off we go. We're on an adventure. We're going to the Gadarenes. Immediately after that, the story changes directions in verse 24. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. And so what we see here is Jesus is actually leading people into a massive storm. And I think they knew. You know, I, I, for me, I, I'm not like super in tune with like weather patterns and clouds and the difference between clouds. I think yesterday at the wedding, we, I noticed that uh, I learned uh, that a lot of you guys are actually serious meteorologists. I look at percentage of precipitation. You guys are pulling up barometric pressures and cloud patterns and wind speeds and wind directions. And I use four cardinal directions. You guys were north, northwest. And uh, I learned, I did not realize how simple my meteorology was. But these guys depended on it, right? So as fishermen, as people who worked the land, who worked with their hands, they relied and were more affected by the weather. And uh, their lives were greatly affected by that. So I think that when they were getting in the boat, I think they knew that, you know, I don't know, Jesus. Okay, let's go. And so it's usually at this point in the sermon, and you guys have probably heard this sermon before, about how Jesus can help us calm those storms in our lives. Who's heard that sermon before? Yeah? I'm going to take a sharp right turn at this point. So while I think that perspective has some value, I... I think that this story shows us another picture of Jesus' ministry, and it's this. Jesus moved with so much precision and purpose. Everything he did had a reason, right? Everything. And every step he took brought him closer to the cross. 
First, we know that the storm isn't a big deal for Jesus because, and this is the most obvious reason, because he was predestined for a death that would hold far more significance. So Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. So when he says, let's go to the other side, he's not saying, let's go drown, right? Jesus knows. Jesus is moving with purpose and precision and direction, intentionality. He has a destination in mind. But we also know that when not only did he not, not only did he have the cross in his mind, but next week we'll actually see that he had a person in mind. He had a person in mind. I'm just going to read, I'll give you a little preview. And I'm going to read you the version from Mark chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. So you can turn there in your Bibles if you want. I'll just read it. It says, as he was getting into the boat, and this is Jesus getting onto the boat to leave the Gadarenes at this point. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And so while Jesus would use the storm to teach his disciples a valuable lesson, a big reason that Jesus was on the boat was because he had this man in mind. Because if you... And I don't know, maybe there's other things that happen in this countryside that they go to. But I remember years ago reading this story. They get on the boat. They cross over. They get off the boat. He drives the demons into a herd of pigs. And then he gets back onto the boat. So it's not like he's doing, he's not stopping there for like a three or four day layover. He went there for one particular reason. You're stealing my thunder. No, I'll stop there then. And so, like I said, like we, we, we will often hear that, you know, this is about Jesus calming the storm. And we'll get to that in a second. But the question I have for us is, while storms are bound to come, do we trust him to take us where we need to go? Do we trust the direction and the leadership of Jesus? I think one of the biggest lies that we've been told in modern times is that following Jesus will make your life easier. Right? And everyone in this room, I guess in this yeah, mine right there. Everyone on this yard <laughs> who's been following Jesus for some time, you guys can you guys know that while Jesus following Jesus has been the best decision you have ever made, there has been nothing easy about your life, right? Christians are open to all of the storms that life has to offer: death, sickness, crime, conflict. In fact, if we're following Jesus, he promises that we'll be persecuted as well. So if anything, there might be more storms. And so the point of the message isn't to say that Jesus is going to calm every storm in your life. The point of this is to see that Jesus is leading us somewhere. And it's often through the storm, right? When the storm comes, he will be with you. Not he's going to calm every storm. As families, as individuals, and as a church, God is leading us somewhere. Right, leaders? Everyone here who has any influence, you can see that God is doing something in this church. And I can almost guarantee you that he is leading us into storms of all types. Not because we're extraordinary people and we need storms, 
But that's just because that's what life is, right? It's kind of a pessimistic view, of, way of looking at it. But life is a collection of storms, it seems sometimes, right? And we can look back at those storms and we have a lot to say about them. But in the midst of it, when you're going through a storm, it doesn't seem that different from any other storm. It's just a storm, right? And so the difference that we need to see is not that Christians don't go through storms or our storms are different. But the difference is not in the lack of storms, but the fact that we have Jesus leading us to the other side. Amen? And that he is with us. In a sense, we have a privilege to enter into the storm because it's in those storms where we discover Jesus more and more, right? So that's the first thing. Jesus is a leader. He's taken us where we need to go. And oftentimes it's through storms. What sort of man is this? He's a leader. The second thing is he is faithful. He's faithful. So the back half of verse 24 reveals a funny little detail. And I'm sure the disciples didn't find it funny, but I've always gotten a chuckle out of it. It says he was asleep. Or Mark chapter 4 verse 38 says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Right? Or as my dad would say, he's pulling timber. Full-blown snoring. He is out. Just like Derek. Full sl- all out. No, you, you, you sleep terribly, actually. So. <laughs> then we get to chapter, or sorry, verse 25, and it says, And they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And so here we see the disciples are losing it. What do you guys think? Is that a, is that a, a good reaction? Raise your hand if you love drowning. Who here loves a good shipwreck? time to time I think this is a completely natural reaction and yet instead of comforting his people by saying hey guys it's going to be okay we're going to make it Jesus turns around and he rebukes them in so many Bibles and maybe you can look at yours the heading here is often called Jesus calms the storms or Jesus rebukes nature but I'm telling you right now if I had a chance to write the heading for this section, I'd probably call it Jesus rebukes his disciples. In fact, who does Jesus rebuke first? Who's he talking to first? He's talking to them. And then he calms the storm. And I think if you read other uh, Mark and Luke, you're going to see a kind of different order. But the point is that he cares about them as well. He doesn't just fix the problem. So verse 26, he says in his rebuke, why are you afraid? Oh, you have little faith. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm afraid, Jesus. Because that wave over there is 100 feet tall. Of course, I'm being a little cheeky, but this is why I love the wealth of God's word. Because this story is also recorded in Mark. And I want us to look at it to to help us see an angle that can kind of help us understand a little bit more about why Jesus is so harsh with these guys. And why he's not merely rebuking them for asking for help. Mark chapter 4, verse 28. He says to them, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's a little clearer, right? Mark's version of the story renders their cry for help more as a, a grumbling and more as an accusation. On the lake, Jesus recognizes that this is an opportunity to teach his people. He's so faithful to rebuke his followers because he cares about their hearts. He cares about their growth. 
And he knows that there's so much that these men are going to face. Bigger things in these, this storm that they're in, right? Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. This is not the time for Jesus to sugarcoat what's about to happen. And so if we look at the actual verse, we can see that Jesus is rebuking his disciples for two reasons. The first one is that they're afraid. And like we said earlier, that's a kind of a completely normal reaction. But their fear reveals a level of unbelief, not because this is the type of storm that really should destroy them and their boats, but the fact that they're ignoring one key factor, one key factor that they're missing here. Who is with them? Who's with them? They miss the fact that Jesus is sitting right there. This story gives such a vivid picture of what Matthew meant when he was quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so this story is a vivid picture of that promise that God is with us. Truly, the difference maker in this story is that Jesus Christ was with them. He was with them. He was in the boat with them. And he is with us right now, right? The problem is, is whenever we forget this truth, we risk slipping into a place of fear and unbelief in the same way that they did. They were so distracted by the storm that for a moment, I imagine, they forgot Jesus was there. The second reason he rebukes them is for lacking faith. He says, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith, or ye of little faith, the King James. So I just ask you guys a quick question. What what is faith? What's what's faith? How would you articulate that? We use the word so much. What does it mean? Anyone? Confidence in something. What else? Trust. What else? Yeah. Hebrews chapter eleven verse one says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." However, I I don't believe that faith is merely belief. And one of my least favorite things in Christianity, or I guess growing up in the church, is when people would tell me to have faith. Have faith. As though faith were some sort of object that I could hold. Or some sort of substance that I can manufacture in my heart. Have it. I'm like, where? How? You're going to give it to me? Where do I buy this? Where do I acquire such faith? What store sells this? Where do I dig for it? Just tell me where to get it. What is faith, right? It's this thing that we can't hold, we can't grasp. And I think what people are saying is just trust God. But as a young Christian, I would grow so deeply frustrated because I'm like, where is it? Where's the faith? (laughs) I need it. I can't find it. If you keep reading into Hebrews 11, and I would encourage you guys to do this in your own time. This is a passage called the faith hall of fame have you guys heard that before the faith hall of fame these are the goats of the faith greatest of all time for those who don't know what goat means it's an acronym but here you see that the men and women in the faith hall of fame are called people of faith not merely because they believed but because they were so full of faith that they did what god told them to do they didn't only 
have faith, but they were faithful. They didn't just believe, they acted on their beliefs, right? These were not just people who said, I believe you, God, and then they stood where they were. God's like, hey, Noah, build this massive ship right on this field. He didn't just say, okay, I know that I believe in my heart. I have faith that this is going to go well. No, he went to Beaver Lumber and he started picking out wood, right? That's for you, Beaver Lumber. Throwback. <laughs> he, started, he started to get the wood, right? And there he is, year after year, gathering wood, building this large vessel. His kids are like, Dad, come on. We, don't even, we can't even have friends. Like, we just, this is all we're doing. Year after year, they're building this boat. It's huge. What are you putting in this boat? Jesus, uh, God, uh, Noah, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? Noah was counted righteous not because he believed God's promises alone. It's because he went through the process of building the boat year after year. Had no friends. Where are the friends? It was just him and his family, right? There was nobody there. Nobody else believed in him. Nobody else believed in this promise that God gave him. Yet he kept on going. He was not just... And I think I've used this illustration before. You guys asked me what faithfulness means. Faithfulness is being full of faith, right? Full of faith. So full of faith that you're willing to do what God is asking you to do. And so if we take that definition, in this case, Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, our shining beacon of faithfulness, what is he doing in the boat? He is sleeping. This is his offering this is his act of faithfulness and jesus's infinite wisdom jesus felt that it was the right time to sleep and you know i asked sometimes when i'm struggling to write i ask my family what i think what they think it means and sometimes i look at the commentary sometimes both rt france says that this is a was an expression of his incarnate humanity Eleanor, my six-year-old, said, I think he was tired. I think he was trying to teach them a lesson. Eleanor says, I think he made himself tired so he can show them later on. Jesus' act of sleeping was what he determined was right, appropriate, and profitable, both to his disciples' growth and also to his ministry. His disciples, on the other hand, because of the lack of faith, they're freaking out. And I can imagine them bailing water, losing their minds. Thomas is trying to jump off, no, trying to jump off the boat. You know, Levi's a tax collector. He's like, I'm not made for the sea. You know, they're like, they're losing their minds, right? So much to the point that they not only are asking Jesus to help them, but they accuse him of not caring, right? And so there's faithfulness. There's a lesson for us there. Two things. Never forget that Jesus Christ is with you. I know this sounds like a super obvious thing. But never forget that Jesus Christ is with you. And that the point of storms is that you may come to love and trust him more. He is faithful to weather storms with you, even if it seems like he's asleep. Right? Second, I think we should follow Jesus' example and rest. Now, I don't mean literally sleeping, because that would not be productive half the time. But I honestly believe that as a culture, we are absolutely terrible at resting, right? We are bad at it. I think we're good at chilling. I think we're good at relaxing. I think we are good at stopping. 
but I don't think we're good at resting. I'm not talking about idleness. I'm talking about seizing from, 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 from trying to, 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 to change your circumstance. Do you guys know that panic that I'm talking about? Where you're just, you're just grasping for things and you're like, I need to do something. I gotta change this. If I just sit long enough and think about it, I can solve this problem. If I just get on Google long enough, I can find the answer. If I search high and low, I can get it. I gotta do something. I'm not gonna sit here and roll over and die. I'm not talking about escaping from reality, but I'm talking about an intentional and aware rest that God is with us. He is with us. In other words, humbling ourselves and waiting for God to deliver us, right? First Peter chapter five, verses six to seven. We love to quote verse seven, which says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But we skip verse six, which says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So when you're in the storm, I know this is probably not the answer you wanted to hear today. Humble yourself. Seize from panic and losing your mind and trying to solve these problems. Rest. Really rest. Content rest. Stop. God is in control. God is sovereign. And the older you get, the more you realize how little you can actually control in this world, right? That has nothing to do with age. I meant like spiritual maturity, but maybe also actual age. Watch it. So that's the second thing. We see that Jesus is faithful. And I, and I just love that passage because he, uh, he, he rebukes the, the, the disciples first and cares about their hearts. And he's like, listen, guys, I got a word for you. Not, oh, guys, it's going to be okay. He says, why are you afraid? You have no faith. I think the, the Luke version says, where is your faith? Like, where is it? Where's your faith, guys? Can't even sleep. Been doing ministry for like three days. I was on the sermon, on the mount doing the sermon. Healed people. It was Peter's mother-in-law. Very tired. Can't even sleep. You're freaking out. Come on, guys. He's faithful. And he, and he tells them what they need to hear. And it is a foreshadowing of what they're going to go through eventually because this storm is the least of their concerns in the big picture as Peter is being crucified upside down because he's not worthy to die in the same way of his Lord. I'm sure that was an infinitely larger storm, right? So he's faithful, and I'm sure the words of Christ resonated in his ears and all the other disciples, except for Judas. Anyways, number three, what sort of man is this? He is Lord of all, verses 26 to 27. It teaches us a valuable lesson about Jesus' lordship. And I think this, that was the topic of the message I delivered two weeks ago. But this is the point of the Gospels. Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you ever get bored of hearing that, we need to go to the Spirit to ask for help because this is the message of the Bible. Our Jesus leads us in and through storms and he is faithful to address our hearts because he cares about that and more. But the passage also teaches us that he is Lord. Verses 26 to 27, it says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
So he, he fixed it immediately, right? Shut it down. No more storm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? A few verses ago, we see the picture of an exhausted Jesus who falls asleep. Jesus is so tired that even a massive earth-shattering storm doesn't wake him up. I'm sure Matt and Chelsea can relate to that exhaustion that you still feel. But this is such a beautiful and vivid image of the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? Do we picture that when we think about Jesus? He's tired. He's exhausted, right? But then we get to verses 26 and 27, and then we see the complete opposite. In this passage, we get a glimpse into the mystery of what theologians call the hypostatic union. Have you heard that before? Probably in a Chris message, you've heard that. The hypostatic union is the fact that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Bakes your mind to think about it. It will bake your noodle if you think about it too hard. It is hard to understand. It's not completely there for us lowly people to get. But as simple as it sounds, he was both man and God at the same time. And so he goes from exhausted, wiped out Jesus to the God of the universe who controls the weather. Even the winds and the waves obey him. And I can tell that Matthew and his disciples are wrestling with this mystery as well. After Jesus wakes up and rebukes his disciples, he, turn, he turns his attention to the wind. Like we established a few weeks ago, Jesus performs miracles to demonstrate his power and his sovereignty. Two weeks ago is his power over sickness. Today it's his power over nature. And next week it'll be his power over demons. And so Jesus stands up and rebukes the wind and sea. And there was a great psalm, a great calm. Throughout the Bible, we see that God's sovereignty and dominion over nature, and specifically the sea, is actually a reoccurring theme. I was actually kind of shocked as I was like digging into the word, how often it's mentioned that God is in control of nature, how he created the oceans, and how he drew the line between land and sea. He did those things, and it's frequently something that is on the lips of different people in the scriptures. So as we close off today, all I want to do is simply look at some of those passages. And you know, I have no real grand point to make. I have nothing big to say here except for the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is worthy of all worship and honor and glory. All of these passages, and I think most of you have the handout that I gave, actually refer to Yahweh. That is the revealed name of God in the Old Testament. And what those passages show us is that God is in control of nature. And so to have Matthew use the same language, it shows us that Jesus is in fact God. He wields the same dominion over nature that the God of the Old Testament has. And so, everybody have a handout? I think there's three. Job 38 verses eight to 11. Psalm 107, 23 to 31. Psalm 65, verses 5 to 8. And the goal of this is to worship. Just hear how powerful our God is and think about Christ. Job 38, verse 8 to 11. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores, I said, 
This far, no farther will you come. Here, your proud waves must stop. Bone chilling, right? Psalm 107, verses 23 to 31. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. The last one is Psalm chapter 65, verses 5 to 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas... The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Amen? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves, the winds and sea obey him? He is Lord of all. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story that you give to us. And Matthew writes it in hindsight. He's looking back. And God, he remembers that you led the way. He remembers that though you were in the boat, they were upset and scared. He remembers that you rebuked them. He remembers that, that you rebuked the sea and the winds. And he remembers the awe as he asked, as they asked one another, Who, what sort of man is this? God, we thank you for this story. And I pray that you would instill in us a heart of worship today. Help us to bow down, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. God, if, we, if anyone here is going through a storm, we know that you have the power to calm it. But God, we pray more importantly that you would be with them through that storm. That you would remind them of your presence. God, that you would even rebuke us for our lack of faith and for our fear. And that we, you would trade for us and take that fear and take that lack of trust away from us. And that you would give us faithfulness to do exactly what you would require of us in these times. Holy Spirit, help us to rest. Help us to not to, help us to cease from uh, uh, trying to uh, adjust and change our circumstances. Help us to trust you and to lean on you and wait for you. Holy Spirit, please go with us this week. We pray. Amen.